This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Facebook could be looking at scrutiny from federal and state regulators as well as lawsuits from consumers after data on more than half a billion users became widely available online. Information said to be exposed includes phone numbers, Facebook IDs, full names, locations, birth dates, bios, and in some cases, email addresses. Facebook says that the data which reemerged online over the weekend is from an earlier flaw revealed in 2019, which Facebook fixed. My guest is Andrea Matwishan, professor and associate dean of innovation and technology at Penn State Law. So was this a dump, a redump? What exactly was it? So that's an excellent question. And it's still early enough in the investigations around the forensics that will explain to us the events leading up to this most recent identification of uh, large numbers of user personally identifiable information being available in hacker forums, the forensics are really what we need to acquire here. Because the extent to which this is part of a prior problem, the extent to which this is a new problem, whether things have in fact been corrected at this point, but also to what extent users were notified in accordance with data breach notification obligations, those are all questions that are going to be contingent on the specifics of those forensics. Additionally, because we have a complicated regulatory relationship between the FTC and Facebook, the date of knowledge by Facebook, but also what exactly they disclosed to the FTC in 2019 at the point of the second round of consent decrees will be operative in whether potentially the data control law will give rise to basis for a new FTC uh, enforcement action under the 2012 consent decree. What will the FTC be investigating? I assume they're going to investigate. Yes. So in 2012, the FTC and Facebook agreed to a set of terms that included ongoing self-supervision obligations and assessments going forward due to some of Facebook's prior practices around privacy and data security. So the extent to which those promises that were voluntarily agreed to by Facebook in 2012 have been broken for a second time will be on the table for discussions, I expect, between the FTC and Facebook when the forensics of this particular incident or maybe more than one incident. We don't even know exactly whether it was one set of leaks or multiple scraping. And it's bound up with some other questions, particularly around the phone numbers, because in 2019, Facebook publicly acknowledged that they were using phone numbers that users provided for two-factor authentication purposes and security as a functionality enhancement to allow for user lookup of other users. And so there was a kerfuffle at the time around that choice by Facebook to repurpose information that for many users would have been provided with an expectation of a narrow security-related use, but not necessarily a use 
repurposing for uh, helping other Facebook users find them. So there are a bundle of various practices that will potentially be implicated in these conversations, um, as well as the context of what was disclosed by Facebook to the FTC at the time of the June 2019 consent. Does Facebook know what happened? I would hope so. Um, <laughs> but this is the first question. So the issue of the extent of forensic analysis internally and what the company knew when and how much of it was a design choice, how much of it was a well-executed incident response at the point at which they found out about it, or how much of the conduct around this incident was a response that some regulators, for example, the EU or Australian regulators may deem to not reflect the expectations that they have for companies in possession of their residents' information. So the, the details and the forensics here are going to be dispositive. So it's a little bit of a wait and see right now, but EU regulators have already announced that they will be conducting further inquiries. I would expect the FTC to follow suit in the U.S. And it's possible that the SEC will take a look, depending on what the nature of the disclosures were, by the company in the relevant 10K statements, because there are Securities Exchange Commission guidance documents around disclosure of security incidents. And um, obviously, uh, public companies have reporting duties around material risks to business and material litigation risk on an ongoing basis under the 34 Act. Facebook has made privacy settlements with the FTC twice, once in 2011 and once in 2019. In light of that, how much credibility do they have when they say they want to protect users' privacy? Critics of Facebook have certainly raised that point, uh, that in uh, this point in the history of the company, critics would argue there have been so many sequential problems that there is a broader story potentially being told of a company that is uh, very interested in public-facing statements but not necessarily interested in creating a culture of uh, data protection and stewardship. And critics have been sounding this alarm since really the uh, creation of the, the company, uh, particularly circa 2007-2009, there started to be uh, material modifications in the privacy default in Facebook. Um, and so there's been a constant uh, set of concerns raised by privacy advocates and consumers as well, um, dating back to uh, the early days of the company. So your point is, is well taken. Will state attorneys general look into this? It's entirely possible that state attorneys general will also inquire as to the specifics of these incidents. State attorneys general would have uh, authority to potentially engage in state level enforcement action under the mini FTC Act, meaning the state specific unfair and deceptive trade practices statutes that um, are a matter of state law and generally tend to parallel the structure of the FTC Act Section 5 on the federal level. So it would be entirely uh, unsurprising 
if some state regulators who already have Facebook in their crosshairs from previous incidents of uh, data stewardship um, suboptimal incidents and the concerns over tech concentration and competition hindrance that are in the ether now, both on the state and the federal level, as well as uh, formal legal proceedings in some cases against large technology companies. That environment is one of uh, greater regulatory and state attorneys general scrutiny. So I would not at all be surprised if the more tech savvy, tech engaged state attorneys general uh, do indeed have some tough questions on this point. What about class action lawsuits? What kind of class action lawsuits could we see? So depending on the extent to which data breach notification statutes were uh, complied with or potentially not fully uh, followed, there may be individual level causes of action in the states with more aggressively drafted data breach notification statutes, Massachusetts being one of them, um, California potentially giving rise to individual level suits at least, some of these uh, cases may end up being class actions in the jurisdictions that are more friendly to class actions. In particular, the nature of the data that was released will be relevant because some of those data breach notification statutes are contingent in the rights that they grant based on the nature of the information that was disclosed about consumers residing in their state. So uh, this is another situation where the specifics of the Facebook response at the time that they found out, uh, whenever that was, and the extent of the data loss of control and the extent of response, forensic analysis, and overall conduct around the incident response will be in play. So I would not be surprised to see class actions. Um, They are becoming increasingly frequent in parallel situations to this one. It is also possible that depending on the nature of the disclosure in the 10K annual report that I mentioned uh, previously, where Facebook uh, has an obligation under the 34 Act to file periodic reports with the SEC, If the disclosure did not extend with um, adequate specificity and notice in the opinion of securities litigators, uh, there is an active securities class action bar. It is possible that we may see uh, class action attempted based on the 10K disclosures or lack thereof, particularly if this does result in a new fine from the FTC, the EU, or another national regulator. Do the fines affect Facebook at all? They're massive fines, but they're just a drop in the bucket compared to what Facebook is worth and makes. This is a critique that has been the topic of discussion. Certainly the FTC's last fine, which was in the neighborhood of $5 billion. The approach that the U.S. regulators take is a more constrained one than European regulators. The amount 
of any subsequent fines may be more aggressive under a GDPR-based approach because GDPR authorizes fines uh, that are contingent on corporate earnings. So this question of the proper construction of fines in a way to send a message to companies is one that, that has been definitely discussed. It's a fair critique. If you can, in essence, plan into your business model the amount of the fine and the fine is materially less than the revenue generated in, uh, say, a single quarter, then the business incentives, uh, some would argue, are to simply view that fine as the cost of doing business, particularly when you have waivers by enforcers of finding any personal responsibility on the part of officers and directors for oversight failures, you set up potentially a situation where that kind of cost-benefit calculation is more likely. And uh, particularly if a company does tend to have a history of repeating kinds of problems, uh, you may not be, some would argue, creating the incentive for an ethical internal self-evaluation as to whether the current management structures are optimally calibrated to identify these kinds of problems early enough in the process and correct them quickly enough. Some of the data sharing decisions that were made internally may have facilitated the uh, aggregation and availability of data that then creates a more attractive target for attackers. So assuming that there was a malicious intrusion, which we don't know, then the way that you build and design your product makes them more or less attractive targets. Um, and if there was no intrusion, but instead this was the aggressive use of a an API or, or an interface of other sorts that's designed to share information, um, for example, allowing for data scraping, then uh, the question, again, comes back to product design and whether the threat modeling was done in a way that accurately, legally models the risk down the road in terms of regulatory action and loss of consumer trust arising from problems that may happen because of the design choices in the way that the product works. And is this data breach particularly problematic in that in the amount of information that was given out on person? You know, for example, you mentioned the phone number that's related to two-fact authentication in particular, could that disclosure of the phone number be problematic for consumers? Depending on whether the consumer volunteered the phone number for limited purpose or whether it was a generally shared phone number, those specifics, I think, are relevant to regulators' determinations of business conduct. The question of, say, a phone number being published some consumers would certainly view it as at least a material inconvenience that their phone numbers are now available for public use, potentially leading some consumers to want to change their phone number 
the consequences of sharing a phone number are potentially less direct in some ways than sharing, say, a birthday or other sensitive, personally identifiable information that can't be changed. You can change your phone number, but you can't change your birthday. So the nature of the information that is included in these exposed databases will be relevant. The way that the information was shared originally by consumers will be relevant as as a matter of privacy. The extent of security practices, product design, and data stewardship choices as a matter of security will be relevant to the security inquiries that regulators will undertake. Uh, So, you know, again, the specifics here of what exactly happens and which sets of data and, and how they're integrated will become very relevant. Thanks, Andrea. That's Professor Andrea Matuishan, Associate Dean of Innovation and Technology at Penn State Law. This week, the Supreme Court denied the U.S. Solicitor General's request to argue in an upcoming case, something the court has done just three times in the past two decades, but twice now in under a year. Joining me is Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson. Explain the Solicitor General's role and how the Solicitor General requests to argue in cases where the government is not a party. Well, the Solicitor General is the federal government's top lawyer at the U.S. Supreme Court. And while they do some work in the lower appellate courts as well, really their focus is on uh, the Supreme Court. And they have a really unique place Um, as a litigant there. They're not only the most frequent litigant in the Supreme Court by far, but they also hold a special place of trust within uh, the Supreme Court. And the office is sometimes known as the 10th Justice um, because of that special role. And so we can see that play out in many different ways that the Solicitor General interacts with the justices. But one that we noticed recently is when the Solicitor General requests to argue in a case in which it's not really a party, but in which there's some kind of federal interest. So this is when it requests to argue as a friend of the court rather than as a party. And do the justices always honor the Solicitor General's request to argue? Well, in modern history, yes. There's a forthcoming law review article out that looked at a period of 10 years starting in uh, you know, the 2010s that said that when other organizations requested argument time as a friend of the court, the court only granted it, uh, you know, less than half the time, 14 out of 41 times. But when it was the federal government asking, they granted it 311 of 312 times. So basically every time. But that's, you know, something that is very small when they deny it. And so it really makes court watchers notice when the justices actually rebuff the solicitor general in this way. So the solicitor general was dealt a rejection recently. Tell us about that. Well, recently, uh, the justices did just that. They told the Solicitor General, no, thank you. We don't want to give you precious argument time in a case about appellate costs. And it's notable because it is one of these rare times uh, where they were turned away, but also because it's happened twice now in just under a year, something that, you know, if you look over 311 out of 312 times, versus something happening twice in one year, you know, that's that's a noticeable uptick. Of course, it's too small of a sample size to really say that, you know, it's an increasing trend, but it's something to watch for sure. 
Is there something similar in the two cases that were denied? Well, you know, all we can really do is speculate. I've said before um, on the show that the Supreme Court, you know, doesn't really explain a lot. It's a very kind of secretive institution. And so it didn't tell us why it turned away the Solicitor General here. But we can guess that, you know, normally the cases where the Solicitor General is seeking to argue as a friend of the court, there's a pretty strong federal interest. And so there was a case earlier this term where we saw a regulated party challenging a state law that said it was preempted by another federal law. And you can see, you know, the the federal interest there and defending uh, what the federal law means is pretty strong. And so the Solicitor General was allowed to argue in that case. In these other cases, the Solicitor General's stated interest is is really one as kind of like a general litigant. Um, So one was about jurisdiction and state courts, and this current latest one is about appellate costs. And so there really isn't an explanation about how the United States is situated any differently um, than any other litigant would be. So you talked to several experts. What did they say about this? Do they see it as the court sending a message to the SG? Well, again, it's too few instances right now to make any generalized terms. I think, you know, with just this, before we had this latest rebuff, you know, there was some speculation that the justices are just going to do this every once in a while as a token measure to remind the Solicitor General that they don't get to argue as of course. But, you know, there is some idea uh, that perhaps the justices are picking up this practice because the Solicitor General has is really asking to argue in more cases uh, than it ever has before. And so we see them I think it was last term they were in, you know, something like 80 to 90 percent of the cases. And, you know, that can really skew the, you know, the policy arguments that are put in front of the justices and ultimately the way that they come out. So that's right now a lot of speculation and something to watch, but it could be a signal that the justices are sending to the solicitor general to kind of be more cautious about when you ask for time. Does giving the Solicitor General time cut into the time of the other parties who are arguing? It can, but it really depends on a case-by-case basis. And and so, you know, we saw sometimes the Solicitor General will be given, uh, you know, 10 of the 30 minutes that the side that they're arguing on has to make their argument in a in a case the same day that they turned away the solicitor general in that appellate cost case they actually granted the solicitor general 10 extra minutes on top of the 30 minutes that the party who they're supporting has so it really depends but yes typically it does actually take away from the party's time and you know that's pretty significant when you consider that you know often the solicitor general they're coming down on the side of that party but they're making different arguments and putting forth different ways that the justices should decide the case in your story you talk about a case involving California's rule requiring charities to disclose the biggest donors and in that case the court is refusing to divide the argument time among the petitioners so these are actually two cases that have the same issue but they involve different parties uh, and the Supreme Court has consolidated those cases for just one hour of argument since they involve you know the same legal issues and the parties had asked if they could divide the time between, you know, both sets of petitioners and then give, you know, additional time to the respondent. 
But the Supreme Court notably said, no, you two petitioners have to decide, you know, one attorney to represent both of your arguments. And at the same time, it allowed the Solicitor General to step in as a friend of the court. Um, so you can see how, you know, there are really small differences between the arguments that the petitioners are making. But that's pretty significant that the justices told them, no, they can't have separate time, but at the same time gave extra time to the Solicitor General. And how's the SG's record in arguments last term? Well, the Solicitor General has a pretty good record uh, as a friend of the court. It has a pretty good record um, in general, even including cases where it's a party. You know, the Supreme Court usually takes cases to reverse them. So you don't see a lot of uh, repeat players coming up with a lot of winning streaks at the court. Uh, but the Solicitor General's office did uh, prevail in, you know, more than 50% of the cases in which it was a party. But when you look at when it's a friend of the court, those numbers are really skewed. Last term, it won 22 of the 28 cases where it weighed in as a friend of the court as opposed to a party saying, so, you know, that's pretty significant given that, you know, they're not really officially a party in the case, and yet the justices really lean on what they have to say. There's an acting Solicitor General right now. Is there any word about when or who Joe Biden might name as the next Solicitor General? I have been pinging sources, and I haven't <laughs> heard um, any word on who may be the next Solicitor General. The only thing that I've really heard from uh, people that I've talked to is that they think that the acting Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogar is doing a great job, and they hope that the Biden administration might actually nominate her to the top spot, something that's not really unheard of. Um, it happened uh, with Trump's acting solicitor general, but you know, that's just, I think, speculation at this point, and you know, the Biden administration is keeping that SG position um, pretty quiet right now. Let's turn to a Texas judge who has gotten a lot of attention over the years, Judge Reed O'Connor. First of all, tell us a little bit about him. So Judge O'Connor is really the go-to Republican appointed judge um, for states who want to challenge uh, Democratic administration policies. Um, he's based in Texas, and you know we've seen Texas really lead a lot of red states, uh, co- red state coalitions challenging things like Obamacare, challenging immigration policies under Obama, and now under Biden. Um, and he's really the judge, and his court is really the court where Texas has filed those cases. Now, I want to be clear that this is not something that only red states do. Of course, blue states do it. Um, it's not just, uh, you know, political groups that do it. We see even international plaintiffs seeking to, you know, find a plaintiff-friendly judge here in the United States. So this idea of what we call forum shopping is not anything specific to this judge, um, but this is the judge that's really the go-to judge for challenging Democratic policies. And tell us about some a few of the cases that um, he drew a lot of attention for, particularly the Obamacare decision. That's right. So the Obamacare case, which I'm sure your listeners are familiar with, is one that's actually in front of the Supreme Court right now. It's a case that looks at, you know, kind of a tweak that the Republican-led Congress made to the Affordable Care Act. And the argument is that with that tweak, it kind of makes the whole Affordable Care Act fall apart 
And this judge actually agreed with that argument, struck down the entire Affordable Care Act. And that's the decision that the justices are considering right now. Really, that decision has caught a lot of criticism, not just from those on the left, but also those on the right. These people who filed in the original Affordable Care Act case on the side of those challenging um, that act and saying that it was unconstitutional, saying that that ruling now just really doesn't follow the law and it's a really outlier. Um, And I think most people expect after oral arguments that the Supreme Court is going to reverse that decision. Um, So it's decisions like that, you know, where we see a lot of criticism on both the right and the left that Judge O'Connor is known for. Explain this tweet and, you know, the whole context of this tweet, how it came about. Well, you know, the administrative offices of the U.S. court, they are kind of the policymaking arm of the judiciary. They often put out, you know, historical information on their tweets and social media sites. They put out a lot of educational information and they just put up a small clip of Judge O'Connor saying that, you know, a judge's role is simply to interpret the law. And if they have any disagreements with public policy, you know, that's not for a judge to say. Something pretty innocuous. And I think something that most people learn about, um, you know, in elementary and middle school, the role of judges. Um, But it was not well received, given that it was this particular judge making that statement. These tweets don't normally get very many responses, but this one did. It did. And we saw a lot of mockery from academia and those who practice in the federal courts saying, regardless of whether or not that's true for some judges, that's not particularly um, credible from Judge O'Connor. You know, whether that's fair or not, or criticism that people can wield at other judges, I think, you know, the point is taken that this particular judge doesn't always follow that rule. And that's something we can see not just in, you know, our own personal opinions, but also the times that he's been reversed by the Supreme Court and higher appellate courts. That's Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by subscribing to our Bloomberg Law podcasts. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.